Well, good morning, Emmanuel. So good to, to finally be uh, back in person, regathered with you all again, to get to see some of your faces in real life. Um, even, you know, they're behind masks. It's really great to get to see uh, some of you who I haven't seen the last six months. Um, and if you're, if you're joining us uh, for, uh, for the first time this week, uh, we're currently uh, in a series uh, that's going to take us through the fall where we're going through the book of Daniel. The series is entitled Daniel, uh, Power, Prophecy, or sorry, Prayer, Politics, and the Power of God. And this week we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 3, uh, the fiery furnace of faithfulness. So several years ago, I, um, I got to go to the uh, Henry Ford uh, Museum, um, which just has a lot of really cool, collects a lot of cool uh, cultural artifacts. Um, and, and one of the things that, that they have and that they have on display there is the bus uh, that Rosa Parks uh, refused to give up her seat on. And although, like you, I'm, I'm, I was pretty familiar uh, with the story, I'd heard it before, um, there was something about it that uh, connected with me and that moved me on a much deeper level as I had the opportunity to actually sit in the bus uh, and to hear uh, a, a voice recording of Rosa Parks herself um, narrating the events of that fateful day that set the civil rights movement in motion. Um, and I think what, what I found so moving, what I found um, so fresh and so incredible about that familiar story uh, was that there was just something in hearing her tell it that, that humanized it. Um, and I realized that, you know, there was nothing uh, pre-planned about that day. Um, and, and in real sense, although her courage was spectacular, there was nothing uh, spectacular about uh, what she did. I mean, she was, a, she was a political activist in her own right already, but she was also just an ordinary uh, church-going uh, woman, a working-class woman. And she didn't have the, the platform or the rhetorical power of someone uh, like Martin Luther King Jr. Um, but what she did have was a heart and a mind that was saturated in the truth of Scripture. She had a heart and a mind that was saturated in, in the truth of Scripture. I mean, she knew her Bible. She knew Genesis 1. She knew that she and her black brothers and sisters were created in the full and the equal uh, image of God, that they had innate human dignity. And that allowed her uh, to calmly and yet courageously hold her convictions, even uh, under immense pressure, even uh, when there were consequences on the line, and at a time uh, when the supreme laws of our nation were promoting and protecting a lie. And as I was sitting in the story of, of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego this last week, um, sort of like the, the story of, of Rosa Parks, it was a story that I was familiar with, but there was also something fresh about it. There was something uh, new about it as I was sitting with it this week where I realized, you know, kind of like Rosa Parks, uh, they, were, they were very ordinary people who displayed an extraordinary level of courage and trust in the Lord. They're the kind of ordinary people that we could both maybe relate to, um, and yet that we also aspire to become, aren't they? You know, uh, these three friends, they didn't possess the uh, extraordinary uh, platform or political uh, influence, even the, the particularly potent uh, prophetic spiritual gifts that their friend Daniel had, and yet at the same time, 
in a culture of compromise and polarized politics. They were courageous enough to choose the narrow way of personal faithfulness to the living God, even when the stakes were high. I believe that this familiar story has something fresh and encouraging to speak to each of us uh, this morning in our own moment, uh, in which we're in a culture that's extremely polarized. So I invite you to, to open your Bibles or bulletins with me to Daniel 3 chapter, or sorry, Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Let's look together at how these three friends navigate the, the polarized culture of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Starting in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the, proven, the province of Babylon. So for those of you who uh, were here last week, um, this this image might sort of be eerily uh, familiar to you. It might, it might uh, ring some, some bells of recognition um, because it's super similar to the image that uh, God gave Nebuchadnezzar in his dream in, in chapter 2. But what we notice is that um, what Nebuchadnezzar does is that he actually takes this, this dream that God gave him, um, he takes a, a piece of its truth and he twists it to accommodate his own pride. So look at how he, how he does this. Um, in the dream that God gave Neb, um, the statue that he saw had just a head of gold. And that was supposed to represent a temporary period of national flourishing under his leadership. Um, but what about Neb's statue? When he makes a statue, if you notice, you see in verse 1, it was an image of gold, of pure gold all the way down, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. So it's massive in size. It's about 90 feet tall, and it's about uh, 9 feet wide. And notice how he gathers all of his uh, top officials, all of the representatives and ambassadors um, of every single nation and culture that he's conquered and colonized, and he, he brings them to this statue. This statue uh, becomes what one commentator calls a visual symbol of unity. A visual symbol of unity. And this is a, a devastating power move. Because ultimately, it's a, it's a false and a forced unity. Um, its purpose is to take this really diverse, really um, messy group of people from all different kinds of cultures, all different kinds of worldviews, uh, with nuanced values, and to create this common central focus that they can all gather together around. He's trying to take this, this diverse group of individuals and he's trying to force them into a single shared identity. This image was essentially uh, Nebuchadnezzar's way of drawing a line in the sand, of saying, hey, are you going to recognize my authority or not? Are you going to ally yourself with me or are you against me? Are you with us or are you with them? And I think we see this uh, particularly in the fact that uh, while we're not exactly told what the image is an image of, in verses 1 to 5, the repeated theme about the image that describes it is the same. And if you look in your Bible, you'll see in verses uh, 1 through 5, every single time the image is referenced, it's referenced as the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. It's his image. 
and to refuse to recognize his image in his mind is to refuse to recognize him. To refuse to bow down and honor his image is to refuse to bow down and to honor him. You know, in an ancient Near Eastern society, if you wanted to know more about a group of people, you, you might ask, like, hey, uh, what gods do you worship? Um, the, the purpose of idolatry, or one function of it at least, is to sort of create this, this clear uh, line of who's in and who's out. Who's the us? Who's the them? And to be them comes with serious consequences, um, which we see in verse 6, where it says, And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So like Neb's statue, um, what all idols do is that they take something that's good. They take something that's genuinely good. So in this case, national flourishing. That's a good thing. But what they do is they, they take something that's good and they make it something that's ultimate. Idols always take a good thing and they make it an ultimate thing. They'll take like a little piece of the truth, like the little piece of the truth that Nebuchadnezzar plucked from Daniel's interpretation of the dream, that this, this uh, statue with a golden head represents a temporary period of national flourishing. But what they'll do is uh, they'll lift it up above all the other truths, above the whole truth, and cause you to focus in on it exclusively to the point that they're drawing lines where God uh, doesn't draw lines, and they're actually breaking down boundaries that God's placed for our flourishing. And that's, you know, one of the most sneaky things about idols um, is that usually the way that they operate and trying to get us to compromise is very subtle. So you notice most of the time with idols, as in this case, um, we're not told that all of the officials at Nebuchadnezzar from all these different cultures, we're not told that um, they couldn't worship their own cultural or national idols. It's not what we're told. They could, but those idols just had to come second. They had to be willing to ultimately show allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. So idols will say like, hey, you're allowed to believe whatever you want to believe. That's totally okay. You can worship whatever, whoever you want to worship, but it's got to come second. When the time comes, and the pressure's on, and the music plays, ultimately you've got to throw in uh, your ultimate support at all costs for the dominating value that the idol represents, whatever that value is. Maybe um, as you're listening to this, Maybe you recognize this same kind of um, idolatrous dynamic in the polarized politics of our own culture today. So culturally, the lines are drawn. Maybe you feel this, where it's like you can believe whatever you want, and that's all well and good, but if you try and evangelize other people, you're narrow-minded, you're bigoted. Um, if you're passionate about issues of racial justice, if you're passionate about issues of immigration or health care, um, you've actually lost sight of the gospel and you're accommodating to the culture to try and make it more palatable. You're allowed to be, and you should be, uh, pro-women's rights, but if you're going to be pro-women's rights, you can't also be pro-life. You can't be anti-abortion. Um, you can't really love someone. You can't really be in a, um, a loving relationship with someone and affirm their full human dignity 
if you don't also affirm their sexual identity and their chosen sexual practices. It's either one or the other. And thankfully, uh, you know, in our culture, um, refusing to recognize these cultural boundaries uh, doesn't end in death, um, but we do have our own forms of social punishment, don't we? So it's like, you might get canceled, or you might get called bigoted. Um, you might find yourself in your community of artists, or in your community at work, uh, sort of getting patronized or pigeonholed based on your convictions and based on your beliefs. Um, you might be dismissed uh, by your coworkers or friends or relatives as fake news. Um, we might not have a fiery furnace, but what we do have is shame posting, right? And it feels just so much easier for all of us to sort of pick a side, to just pick one of these polarized sides we most resonate with and to just retreat into the cultural silo that feels most comfortable for us and avoid uh, the rage and the backlash of the idols. And one thing that we see again and again in the book of Daniel, something we've seen already and we're gonna continue to see it throughout the book, is that in the heat of the culture war, in the heat of the culture war, whenever it is, God's faithful people usually get caught in the crossfire. When the lines are drawn in the culture war, God's faithful people usually get caught in the crossfire. Look at how this happens in verse 13. So then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands. So notice what Nebuchadnezzar does. Before they could kind of maybe go unseen and unnoticed in their refusal uh, to capitulate to the polarized politics of their day, um, when all of their coworkers uh, were forced to stand before the statue and bow down, they could probably go unnoticed. But now Nebuchadnezzar, he's up the stakes a little bit. He's called them in for a personal one-on-one -on -one test of loyalty, where he's looking them right in the eye, and he's like, okay, when the music plays, are you going to bow down? When the music plays and the pressure's on, will you throw in your ultimate allegiance with me? Now, look at how these three friends calmly and yet courageously choose personal faith, faithfulness to God even when the stakes are incredibly high. This is so simple, and yet it's also so incredible. And we see this beginning in verse 16, where it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods 
or worship the golden image that you've set up. Do you notice how they very respectfully, very calmly and, and courageously refuse to get sucked into Nebuchadnezzar's trap of polarized politics? You know, before they were slandered by a group of their coworkers who said, hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, these people who you just promoted, they've actually, they're, they're ignoring you. They're not paying any attention to you. They're disrespecting you. Uh, they're, not, they're not bowing down to your idol or serving your gods. Now, of course, this is totally untrue. These three friends have been incredibly faithful co-workers. They've served the king, uh, not as yes-men trying to earn his approval or, or for their own um, self-advancement, but actually because they believe that God is the one who placed them in the king's palace and they're serving the Lord. So they're probably the most trustworthy uh, leaders who he has under him. And yet he's created this zero-sum game for refusal to recognize this image equals betrayal and disloyalty to him. And yet they refuse to get stuck in that trap. Instead, they just graciously reply, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. They choose not to play the game. They refuse to defend themselves. They refuse to take up the bat of strong argumentation for you know, necessarily why he's wrong and why they're right. And instead, what they choose to do is to deflect. They deflect the focus to the glory and the power and the beauty of the living and true God that they serve. Look at how they do this in, in verse 17. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. And this isn't, um, you know, just a sentimental baseless, naive hope or theology of God that they have. No, they're, they're actually enthralled. They're enthralled with the power and the beauty of the living God that they serve. They know this God personally. They know his faithfulness. They've heard the stories of his faithfulness from their ancestors. They've saturated themselves with his, the stories of his deliverance and his ability to save from Scripture. They know the story of, of how God rescued Noah's whole family from the flood. They know about how the living God delivered Joseph from slavery, and then when, when he was uh, in prison on false accusations, vindicated him and delivered him and saved him. They know the stories about how God delivered his people from captivity in Israel, brought them through, or from Egypt, and brought them through the Red Sea into their own land. They've saturated their hearts, their minds, their imaginations with these stories. So rather than get defensive or argue, they calmly, they courageously place themselves in the hands of their loving creator. They're beautifully differentiated in this way. They don't get stuck in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's anxious, unstable identity in this zero-sum game, but they, they're actually able to say, look, we trust in God. He's going to be able to vindicate us, and he can vindicate himself. He can defend his own worthiness. He can defend his own glory. That's not our job. Our job is just to be faithful. You'll notice that um, their faith, it's not in some abstract theological or philosophical principle. Um, their faith isn't this, you know, just warm, fuzzy feeling in their stomach. Um, they're, they're not even trusting 
and their own faithfulness and in their own morality to save them and to deliver them. But it's the God that we serve, the God that we know, the personal God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that we're connected to and bonded to in covenant, committed love. Look how they express this, this total commitment to the living and true God in these three stunning words, just three stunning words in verse 18. But if not. But if not. Isn't that our greatest fear? That if we put our neck on the line for God, um, if we have a courageous conversation with a coworker who we've been praying for and a door opens and we share our faith in Jesus, and then it just makes the relationship awkward. It's like, God, why didn't you come through? But if not, what if I graciously share my convictions with someone who's asking me about what I view on racial justice or human sexuality? What if they misrepresent me? What if they make me a caricature or even reject me? But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the golden image that you've set up. This but if not, it's, it's not like they're trying to play both sides of the field. They, they're, they're not doubting God's ability to save them and to deliver them. But what they're actually acknowledging is something that idolatry never can, that they're not God. They're acknowledging something that that idolatry ultimately never can, that idols never can, that they're not God. They don't draw the boundaries. They're God's servants. He's not their servant. He's the one who's sovereign. And they don't assume to know how God, in his sovereignty and in his love for them, his faithfulness to them, is going to choose to display his faithfulness to them and through them whether by life or by death. They don't assume to know that. But what they do know is that he's trustworthy. He is absolutely trustworthy. Trustworthy enough that they can give him their personal faithfulness, even when the stakes seem very high. And they are very high. We see exactly how high they are in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury And the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Isn't that the worst? When you're in a difficult conversation with someone and you can see the change of their face. The disappointment, the anger, the hurt. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And then jumping to verse 22. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. So I want to ask you this morning, um, have you ever been caught in the crossfire? Have you ever been caught in the crossfire of polarized politics, been caught in the crossfire of a raging culture war, Um, a situation where the lines are clearly drawn, 
and you feel bound. You feel like, I don't know how I can uh, maintain this relationship with this person on their side, not on mine. I don't know how, how I can be faithful to God and to his word without this person or this group of people personalizing it and viewing my faithfulness as proud, as naive, or maybe even just downright unloving. At some point, all of us as followers of Jesus, all of us, we're going to receive a loyalty test like the one that these three friends received in front of King Nebuchadnezzar. A moment when the music plays and the pressure's on and each of us, it's going to come down to will we be personally faithful to Jesus? Where we've used all of our smart and clever strategies for cultural engagement, all of our uh, nuanced apologetical views, and it ultimately just comes down to, will we be personally faithful to Jesus when we feel the pressure to conform and to capitulate? Not faithful to Jesus as an idea, not faithful to Jesus as an ideal, not faithful um, just to a complex theological concept, but faithful to Jesus as an actual person. Faithful to Jesus as a person who has thoughts, who has feelings. Will we consider his approval over everyone else's? Will we consider his thoughts and his feelings over everyone else's? And friends, um, as I'm sure you know and I know from plenty of times in which I have capitulated to compromise, um, this usually isn't a decision that we just make on the fly. This isn't a decision that we can just make on the fly to usually choose personal faithfulness to Jesus. Um, usually it's a choice that we make over and over again on a daily basis when the stakes are much lower, isn't it? So how can we follow Jesus and be faithful under pressure? I think that there's two things that we can take with us into the fiery furnaces that will test our faithfulness this week. One of them is just a simple life hack. Um, it just reaps many benefits personally and especially in our relationship with Jesus, uh, which is self-awareness. Self-awareness is always key. So being aware of where are the spaces in which I am most often tempted to compromise in my personal faithfulness to Jesus? Where are the spaces, where are the groups of people what are the issues, whether it's workplace or online, with a certain group of friends, where the conversation might shift a certain way, argument gets intense, and I am most tempted to capitulate and to compromise my personal faithfulness to Jesus. I mean, these, these fiery furnaces that test our faithfulness, like I said, they come in all different shapes and sizes, um, and we need to be aware of them. We need to be aware of them, and we also, as we prepare to go into them, uh, number two, what we need to do is we need to cover ourselves. We need to cover ourselves in the promises of God's sustaining presence with us. So, you know, as Christians, um, we believe that personal faithfulness uh, to God is actually a gracious gift. It's a gift that God creates in us, that God sustains in us, um, not a gift in which we're totally passive, um, but it is something that God creates and sustains in us. It's a gift, uh, but a gift that, like one writer says, um, 
is usually not given in advance. It's usually not something that we just carry in our pocket, um, but it's a gift that's given moment to moment in the heat of battle, moment to moment on a daily basis. It's a gift that's sufficient for the day, like the Lord Jesus would say. We see that um, these three friends, again, they didn't go in uh, with a naive hope or a sentimental faith that God might deliver them. Um, they didn't go in with a half-baked resolve. If they did, I really don't think that their character would have withstood the intense pressures for them to compromise. But they'd saturated themselves and covered themselves in God's promises. I mean, this whole Daniel generation is a generation of young people who, under the, the reign of King Josiah, who had rediscovered the Torah scroll, who brought back the public reading of Scripture, were able to saturate themselves in God's word and saturate their minds and their imaginations and their hearts in God's promises with stories of God's faithfulness. And I just imagine them before this meeting where they knew that they would be tested. I just imagine them almost like just in a prayer huddle, crying with each other, covering themselves in these promises, rehearsing these scriptures that they grew up with. Think of a scripture they're probably very familiar with, that was a given to the people of Israel, preparing them for exile 200 years before this generation of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A word that was given through the prophet Isaiah, where the Lord promised this, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flames shall not consume you. Just imagine them praying and rehearsing this. Like, yes, this is the God that we serve. This is the God that we're committed to, that we're bonded to in covenant, faithful love. We can't deny him. He's going to deliver us. We've got to cover and sustain ourselves with the promises of God's sustaining presence with us. And for a moment, for these three friends, it really looked like their worst-case scenario. Um, it really looked like their but-if-not had actually come true. But then, we see that immediately after this, something incredible happens. We see it starting in verse 24. This encouraged me. I hope it encourages you too. That King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he arose in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. When we're brought to the fiery furnace of faithfulness, what the, the fiery furnace of faithfulness doesn't just do is to reveal our own level of personal faithfulness to the living God. But what it actually does is that it reveals the intensity, the intense level of God's personal faithfulness to us. It doesn't just reveal our own uh, personal level of personal faithfulness to God. If it did, it would actually be probably pretty depressing on a daily basis when we're brought into these fiery furnaces. But every single time we're brought into a fiery furnace in which our, our personal faithfulness to Jesus is threatened to be compromised, we actually have an opportunity in God's grace to see the intense level 
of God's personal faithfulness to us. A faithfulness we see in Jesus, the Son of God, walking with them unbounded in the midst of the fire. A faithfulness that ultimately would take Jesus all the way to the cross, that would take him all the way to the fiery furnace of our own hell and sinful alienation from fellowship with the living God. Where he would take on personally all of our failures, all of our uh, moments in which we've mindlessly bowed down to our idols and to the idols of our culture. Where he would take all of our compromises upon himself and judge them and allow us to trust in his perfect sacrifice and forgiveness so that we can be delivered like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so that we can walk through the fires and not be burned, so that we can experience, anyone who puts their, their personal faith in Jesus can experience the unbounded presence of God, fellowshipping with them, even and especially in their suffering, in life or in death, for all of eternity. Ultimately, we see um, that the fiery furnace, what it reveals, not just about our personal level of faithfulness to God, but God's personal level of faithfulness to us, is ultimately our best gospel witness. It's our best gospel witness. Look at how their testimony from the fiery furnace demands a response from Nebuchadnezzar. Starting in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's demand and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Which, if that's not a total 180, I have no idea what is. But God's intention in bringing them to the fiery furnace it was not to just show off their own level of personal faithfulness which although it's incredible, would still be woefully insufficient to show off his own faithful presence that would come and enter all of our fiery furnaces and lay down his life, even for the King Nebuchadnezzars of this world. So if they put their personal trust in him, they could spend eternity with him forever. This personal presence of these three friends, faithful God, it's done something to Nebuchadnezzar. He's seen the supreme glory of God. He's seen the reward of faithfulness to him, which is just unbounded joy and fellowship with him. He's witnessed how it's worked wonders, and you'll notice um, the God that he references is still the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's not the God of Nebuchadnezzar. We'll see next week that he's still got some humbling. He's going to be placed into his own fiery furnace in which he's going to get to experience the faithfulness of God after he's undergone some humbling. 
But in the meantime, he's not quite ready to fully and joyfully submit to God, to give his own personal faithfulness to him. Before I close, I just want to say, maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian home, you're not a Christian, you're interested in Jesus, and you're just here wanting to hear more about Jesus. Maybe you, you did grow up in a Christian home, but you're kind of shaky in your faith. Maybe like all of us, you just there's a, there's a place, there's an idol uh, that you're, you're tempted on a consistent basis to bow down to. And you're not quite able, you, you feel sort of a block where you're not quite able to, in that particular area of your life, just trust the boundaries that God's drawn and to give your full and total personal faithfulness to him. You're feeling stuck, kind of like Nebuchadnezzar. I want to pray for all of us, um, but first I just want to say um, that the kind of joy of unbounded fellowship with God, even in suffering, it's not something that we can fully understand intellectually. Um, it's not something that we can really experience from afar while we're still on the other side of joyful submission. We're still on the other, other side of the fiery furnace. So I want to pray for us. Just allow us to open ourselves to the Lord. Ask him to meet us. Gracious God, we thank you Thank you that every single test of loyalty that we receive not only reveals the intensity of our loyalty to you, but for those of us uh, who are bound to you in Jesus, it reveals the intensity of your faithfulness and your loyalty to us. I pray for all of us, Lord, who in different uh, kinds of fiery furnaces, when it comes to uh, different polarizing issues are, are feeling stuck and feeling like we're having a hard time trusting you and submitting you and giving you our personal faithfulness in these different areas. I pray, Lord, that even now as we worship, as we receive communion, as we leave this place and go into this week, pray, Lord, that just like you came and you met Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you didn't just deliver them, but you gave them a an experience of your own faithfulness and love with them and for them that they could take with them the rest of their lives. I pray that you would meet us and strengthen us in every way in which we need to be strengthened. I ask all of these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you please stand for the prayers of the people?